0: All of us should be willing to pay whatever taxes are necessary to enable efficient government to improve or expand any essential service. You have a beautiful tax return. The nicest one I've ever seen. Okay folks, but remember your manners. No stampeding. Walk slow, like you do when
1: you come to pay your taxes. Hi, I'm Steven Dean. This is The Tax Maven. Here we are going to, in each episode, talk to our tax maven. Will be a person proving Archimedes's point that a single person with a lever long enough and a place to put it can change the world. The lever in this case is tax, and the place to put it is here at NYU Law. Two, Today's tax maven is a glass half full kind of person. Although she sees the foundations crumbling under the taxation of multinationals, she sees an opportunity rather than failure. When you listen to her, you might be forgiven for thinking that we might just come together to improve upon a century-old system for taxing multinationals, and this time, just maybe get it right. I'm Stephen Dean, the Faculty Director of the Graduate Tax Program at NYU Law, and I'm here today with Allison Christians, who is not only a full professor and Associate Dean for Research, but also the H. Heward Steichman Chair in the Law of Taxation at McGill. And French Christians also got her LM in tax from NYU in 2003. Uh, Thank you for coming. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here, Stephen. Professor Christians is the kind of scholar that is able to see the details, but also to understand the big picture.
0: When we think about tax, international tax especially, we're thinking there's a problem in the way that the, uh, the tax system allocates income across countries, and there's a struggle for dominance of ideas, and there's a, a struggle also for coherence. And so we pinned, we in the international tax have pinned our hopes on some ideas about how we should allocate profit, um, and they, the, the core, the crux of those ideas seems in some way to lie in value, but we never really used to say that. But then a couple of years ago, you could see the OECD started saying, well, there's a principle that explains how we decide which country gets what, and it's that income should be taxed where value is created and where economic activities take place. So the OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's a thirty-some member uh, intergovernmental organization. The United States is a member, albeit reluctantly on occasion. Uh, Canada is a member, but it's often referred to as the rich countries club. And if effectively, the OECD is a uh, policy-making organization, and the idea is that its heads of state, finance directors, uh, finance ministers, getting together and comparing notes on important regulatory areas, and the idea is that in that space they can compare practices and come up with coherent or coordinated strategies to solve mutual problems.
1: To understand why the OECD is concerned with taxing where value is created, and why that might be controversial, you have to know a little something about the way international tax has worked for the last hundred years or so.
0: You look at a multinational, and a multinational is a bunch of companies that are controlled or affiliated with each other. So that is, you have Apple in Cupertino, California, that's one company, and then Apple also has a company in Ireland, and that's a separate company, and together, those two companies make up Apple the multinational. And then, of course, Apple has, you know, 200 other companies in the structure, Uh, and so that's the big picture of the multinational. And so the idea is, well, when Apple is designing a product in Cupertino and developing it in a lab in Ireland, developing intellectual property ideas, branding and so on, and then making the phone in a third company in China, you know, that whole supply chain produces one profit. How should each of those three countries get it. And so the the OECD uh, has, and all the OECD countries, that is to say, have come to a kind of an uneasy compromise, which is to say, well, each country will tax that portion of the profit that's related to the things that happened in their country. That's the basic structure
1: and how does that uh, align or contrast with this idea of taxing uh, val- taxing where the value is created? Is that sort of, does that embody that or does it conflict with
0: that? Well, I think when the OECD started talking about the goal of this whole project is to tax income where value is created, it caused some of us to pause a bit because we actually didn't know that that was necessarily the goal. We thought the goal was to have a workable consensus, sort of like, which side of the road should we drive on? Not some sort of economic uh, statement about the world, like here's a dollar that we got in international profit, now let's fragment it and assign it to, you know, the different people that might claim it. So I think there was some surprise maybe when the OECD talked about value. And, you know, what's interesting, because now you see them backed into a corner a little bit on this language. Because if you're going to tax where value is created, well, let's talk not about Apple, but let's talk about Google, you know what is Google's value? Uh, where is their value created? Their value is created by users uh, voluntarily providing copious amounts of data, which then Google employs people all over the world to algorithmically analyze and then spit back useful, valuable things, and in the meantime, collect advertising dollars all along the chain. So where is the source? Where's the value created in a Google supply chain where there's no good or product, but there's a bunch of uh, digital data, and certainly there's cables under the sea, but that's nice, pretty hard. Are we gonna divide it based on like, how long is your cable versus my cable? That's a hard way to go. So we see now, OECD countries, Really struggling. Oh, value creation in the context of a digital. How do we talk about that?
1: This all sounds pretty disheartening. But as I said, Professor Christians is an optimist.
0: There's a door opening that has been closed for a while because you're quite right. We've been using these. ways of thinking. We've been telling ourselves stories, let's say, for about a hundred (laughs) years that we know what to do and here's how to do it. And this is a mutually agreed uh, consensus position that everyone can uh, work with. And maybe you lose some in one place, but you gain it in another. So it's acceptable. It's mutually beneficial. And so it's workable. But man, you would think something you've done for a hundred years—you would think it would have got better over the, that time. That you would have learned something. But instead, the foundations have crumbled underneath, and uh, you know it's going to fall into a state of disrepair very quickly. I think because the only solution, when you realize that the consensus, you're not sure that you actually are getting benefits anymore. Then you get some key countries saying, "Okay, well, we're not actually going to follow the rules anymore." And so you see some countries adopting digital services taxes and doing different things to try to capture some of the so value. So tell
1: us about the digital services taxes. What, what are what is the digital services tax?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think I wouldn't call this uh, a solution. That I think is necessarily going to work. I'm not sure. We'll see. But so effectively, if you've got Google in your jurisdiction. But they're not actually there. They're, people are searching on Google. Your users are searching. Your customers are searching. Your taxpayers are searching on Google. But Google has no office in your country. Um, and what they're doing is selling advertising to local advertisers. But they don't, they're not taxpayers in your jurisdiction. And you look at that flow of data from your people and the advertising dollars. And you say, it's not enough to tax the consumer. It's not enough to tax the advertisers who are in our jurisdiction. We actually want some of the profit that Google is making, which is booked somewhere else. So you need a separate, you basically need a separate tax unless you can adjust the one we have. The digital service tax or, or any kind of new tax that is different than what we're doing, that's the um, outward sign that the compromise is no longer acceptable. And so that means a door is opening. That is, countries that are saying, okay, the compromise that we have on how we divide the profits of multinationals, we're uneasy with it now. We don't know how to work it. So we need to go find something somewhere else. So we're just gonna slap on this other tax and hope for the best. But that's, uh, the, when that happens, what it shows that, uh, is that the tolerance for tax competition or the tolerance for engaging in a certain kind of tax competition might be shifting, not changed, not even eliminated, but just shifting. The terrain is shifting. And I think that gives us an opportunity, right? So in, the tw- in 1919, when the League of Nations is thinking about this, it's because the the modern income tax is being born, and people are just starting to open the door to realize, oh, there are these coordination problems. We need to fix these things. And now in 2019, where we see that we haven't solved those problems, the fact that countries are adopting unilateral strategies is saying, oh, we need a new, we actually need a new compromise. The thing we have is not working. And so from my perspective, and I know you share this perspective, Stephen, From my perspective, there's not only an opportunity to open the door and re-examine our principles for their own sake, to say we need better principles, principles that can be mutually beneficial, but also to consider the sort of global socioeconomic implications of our system, which, by the way, as you know, we have ignored for a century.
1: And what would that look like? Uh, What are the socioeconomic implications that you think um, we've been ignoring?
0: Yeah, well, I think the one for me, the big one, and that's sort of in that paper that you mentioned, is that when you look at a global supply chain and you look at how the tax system credits the various contributions of different countries, you end up in this place where highly productive countries that are very wealthy effectively claim most of the profit from multinational activity even though the things we're talking about especially in the case of you know digital products like all of us have that phone the the products that we need to use those things they're made from rare earths and minerals that have to be dug out of the ground and non-renewable resources that have environmental impacts that we have allowed to be externalized we have used irresponsibly and we are seeing the growing climate crisis as a result of those things. So those things are not reflected in the current system, and they're not reflected for good reasons. But we need to fix those things. Well,
1: those are those are broader market failures, right? So the idea exactly. you're saying is that we don't do a good job of pricing in environmental costs or uh, the the costs of uh, you know bad labor laws, um, and you're suggesting that the tax laws can be. Uh, can be fixed without waiting for the underlying market failures to be addressed everywhere?
0: Well, I think you have to, I think there's no one solution, and everybody needs to work together on different uh, approaches. So, one way is to have different kinds of taxes to deal with different kinds of problems. For example, a carbon tax is an option to try to deal with environmental uh, damage. But think about the consequences if we allow externalized costs to not be counted for tax purposes. What that means is that the profit that's derived from not from saving costs is attributed not to the place where you save the costs, but it's attributed to someplace else in the global supply chain, and normally that's going to high-income countries. So if you look at what countries need to spend to be dealing with Um, their economies and their development needs, what we perversely have done is built a tax system that allocates most of the gains of international trade and commerce to high-income countries and very, very little to low-income countries. And that just has to be fixed. Now, I think that there are ways to fix that. And I think we could and should be looking at the way that the... In, and this is a plumbing. You know, this is really the plumbing. This is in the weeds of the, the we, rules. We get excited about this. Yeah, but. we do. We do. And we could spend some time in the transfer pricing, uh, the rules for multinational profit allocation. But suffice it to say that the system is built on a structure, which is an economic fiction-creating structure, which is it takes a multinational and tries to come up with an artificial counterfactual that pretends the multinational is a bunch of companies that don't deal with each other uh, as a controlled group, but as market participants. And in that structure, a lot of economic analysis is going on about value drivers. And now that we're learning more about the economic and ecological costs of for example, energy extraction, those are inputs that can go into that same analysis and it would produce a different result. We're getting wonkish though, so we need to be careful with
1: that. that. That's true. So you mentioned <laughs> a carbon tax. Uh, could that save us all or no, is that? No. No. Okay. no,
0: I don't think so. And part of the reason it's hard for a carbon tax to save us all is not that it's not the correct thing to do. Of course, it's a good and correct thing to do. Part of the reason that it's not going to save us all is because the carbon tax is a consumption tax and it's uh, politically, tough to get people to understand that you now have to internal you have to s- consume less. You have to consume less. And that is really hard. That is really hard to sell, not because it's wrong. It's correct. But what politician is going to go the distance to make that carbon tax the amount that it needs to be uh, and risk their political future to gain a collective benefit? Not too many. Whereas, and this sort of just a thought, sometimes there's an attraction to a more complex regime, uh, which you can, as you know, you can quantify that complexity, but there's a political benefit to that complexity too. And I think that's harder for us to talk about because what we're saying is, If the carbon tax can be politically difficult for people to accept, can we internalize the environmental costs in a way that is not as obvious? It's not as clearly put right on the consumer. And is that okay if we do that? We're not hiding it, but we are changing the way we impose it. Working within the system a bit. That's the idea. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, so I, I, now I'm going to ask you a question that I don't think you know the answer to. Okay. Um, and I don't, even though you live in Canada, I don't want you to think this is some weird uh, anti-Canadian uh, uh, question I'm going to ask you. Um, but maybe it kind of is. Well, you'll, you'll decide. So, okay. um, I'm ready. We're going to talk about the world of tax-exempt organizations. So we're tax lawyers, but part of uh, tax is tax-exempt organizations. Um, so the uh, question is, which of the following tax-exempts faced a quote-unquote takeover attempt by an anti-immigrant campaign in sort of a proxy voting battle. Um, So one of the three. It was either uh, the Sierra Club or the Boy Scouts of America or the American Red Cross. So they wanted to turn one of these three organizations into uh, uh, add a plank to its uh, its mission uh, that was about restricting immigration into the United States.
0: And they are Red Cross, The Boy Scouts of America, or yeah. the Sierra Club. <laughs> this just doesn't seem plausible that it could be any one of those three. It is definitely one of those three, Professor <laughs> Christians. Okay, I will just pick the Sierra Club. On And here's the rationale. The Sierra Club is a global... Uh, you know, it has a global focus, so maybe there's some... Maybe there's some connection, and also, you know, there's like some animal. There's some connection to animals uh, with the Sierra Club and preservation. So that's why that's my answer. So there's your no. your answer
1: is correct. Your explanation is wrong. Your explanation is dead wrong. So uh, for getting the answer right, I'm going to give you this lovely wow. NYU Law Graduate I, Tax
0: Program pencil. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. Use
1: it. Uh, use it sparingly. There aren't that many of those to go around. So I'll tell you the story. So yeah. the story is. Um, that, uh, so I'm going to read a quote from an article by uh, Dana Brackman Reeser, Nonprofit Takeovers Regulating the Market for Mission Control, from 2006. Uh, uh, she says, The most volatile of these um, nonprofit takeover attempts began following a 1996 board resolution that adopted a neutral stance on a U.S. immigration policy. In response, members of the club formed Sierra's for U.S. Population Stabilization, S-U-S-P-S, <laughs> To advocate a return to traditional Sierra Club population policy, um, so the idea is that if you care about the U.S. environment, fewer people is good for the U.S. environment, right? Uh, the the landscape, the uh, the resources within the U.S. So. Uh, an anti-immigrant stance was considered uh, uh, consistent with that uh, that vision. So they, um, the the good news for for us, I think, uh, is that uh, they lost, um, uh, and uh, so um, it didn't succeed. Um, and uh, uh, turns out the Sierra Club is not uh, currently it remains neutral. Neutral, on, yeah. on immigration. Um, so yeah, so
0: see, that's the thing. I thought. Sierra Club, so the one thing that's clear is that butterflies can go wherever they want, whether there's a border or not, and there's just sort of no stop. And they do. Right, so I thought... They do, they
1: migrate an incredibly long way. Right,
0: and so I thought, yeah, I can imagine the most absurd place where you would try to restrict human um, migration would be the one industry or the one entity whose one of their main things is to think about Things that do not observe borders at all. Allison, right. the, the world the world uh, is rich
1: in irony, as as we know. Exactly. exactly. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Christians. Thank you for listening to The Tax Maven. Uh, and I also want to give a very special thank you to those that helped make the podcast possible. Patrick Kelly, Joe Rivera, Greg Addison, Rebecca Carmichael, Jill Racklin, and Anthony Pietrangelo. And thank you, Rachel Burns. The NYU Law Graduate Tax Program has been the premier place to learn about tax law for the past 75 years. So please visit us on the web. Visit our Graduate Tax Program website to see the different programs we offer, both in person and online, both for lawyers and non-lawyers. Take a look at what we offer, uh, and I hope you consider joining us. And now, we like to end each of our episodes with a quote about taxes read by one of our students. Today's student quote is read by Chris from Livingston, New Jersey. The source of this quote is Randolph E. Paul's article, The Responsibilities of the Tax Advisor. The mills of tax law and their perpetual motion grind exceedingly fast and exceedingly fine. The end product is a recalcitrant, ambiguous body of turbulent law, with no fields of black and white, where exactness would be only delusive, where logic makes frequent concession to practical values, and where considerations of policy tip many nicely balanced scales. Please email us at info at taxmavenpodcast.com if you have any questions or comments or suggestions. And if you are a student uh, and want to email us a recording of your favorite tax quote, please email it there as well. Thanks for tuning in.